Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that relishes all sorts of information and experiences in the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have new stories including Ford's F-150 Ute is bound for Australia, the Jeep Compass, hydrogen highways and do we support local business enough. In our feature story we discuss what is wrong with the budget in regards to transport We have some nice feedback about some people who are helping with a project we have, including some from car clubs. And finally, we hear from Scott Nagar from Hyundai in Australia on what the hydrogen highway might really mean. You can always get more information at drivenmedia.com.au with links to social media and podcasts. But let's get this program going. Let's have the latest news. On the day of the federal government's budget announcement, with its widely predicted slashing of the petrol excise tax, Ford announced that it would be bringing the F-150 utility into the Australian market by mid-2030. The F-150 has been the top-selling vehicle in America since 1983, with total sales in that country of more than 40 million vehicles. The Australian F-150s will be offered with a crew cab body, a mid-spec 3.5-litre V6 engine, giving 298 kilowatts and 678 newton metres of torque, and a 10-speed transmission. The curb weight of the Australian model is likely to start at over 2,100 kilograms, but it will be rated to tow 4.5 tonnes. It will be offered in this country with either one of two equipment levels, the XLT and the Premium Laureate. Ford Australia has engaged engineering specialist RMA Automotive, who are headquartered in Thailand, to remanufacture Australian-bound vehicles to right-hand drive. Price information has not been released. The Jeep Compass is categorised in the hotly contested small SUV segment. The latest model was launched in the middle of last year with some basic models. We recently drove the Compass Trailhawk that did not come out to near the end of the year and now they have a further specification model that's come out this year, the Night Eagle. Even the base models come with many driver assistance systems including traffic signal recognition, adaptive cruise control, drowsy driver detection and rear cross traffic detection. Now the Trailhawk is the only one with a diesel engine, 2 litres and the need for Add Blue, which means it meets the Euro 6D level of emissions standard. Like all bar the base launch edition, the Trailhawk has four-wheel drive and a 9-speed automatic gearbox. I would have liked the steering wheel adjustment to be able to make it a bit closer to the driver. I like leg room but not with your arms nearly fully extended. The digital dash provided some good options with some choices in your preferred information and it was easy to read. There was also a 10.1 inch infotainment screen. Few of the controls were a bit difficult from the normal and that took some getting used to. But the exterior looks were impressive for this category of vehicle. The pictures don't do it justice but Jeep has managed to make it look more than a box without just adding awkward features that look like they were tacked on like flares over the wheel arches. Good off-road, but $51,250 plus on-road costs to buy. 
1993, the US federal government froze its fuel excise at 18.4 cents a gallon, removing any further indexation for inflation. The increasing squeeze on transportation budgets led many states to raise their local tax, particularly in recent years. The lack of federal funds for infrastructure, including the need for maintenance, let alone further construction, has been described as creating a crisis for transport in that country. Since 1983, the top-selling vehicle in the U.S. has been the Ford F-150 Utility. This is a ute that is bigger than the typical Toyota Hilux and Ford Ranger in Australia. In Australia, the Howard government, in the lead-up to the 2001 election, which looked like they might not win, they introduced, among a range of policies, a reduction in excise on petrol by 1.5 cents a litre to compensate for the GST, and they axed the twice-a-year indexation of excise that Labor had introduced in 1983. It was never going to produce a perceivable benefit to the electorate in the short term, but would have, like the American situation, undermined tax revenues in the longer term. Nonetheless, it sounded good and they won the election for a variety of reasons. But indexation was reintroduced by the Abbott government in 2014. The current Australian federal government has halved the excise for six months. An across-the-board reduction in the user tax will most significantly impact those who travel long distances and those who have high fuel consumption vehicles. It will help freight operations and the consumer depending on how much is passed on. But in six months' time, it will be difficult for whichever government is in power to reintroduce that tax. Three eastern state governments have signed a Memorandum of Understanding to build Australia's first renewable hydrogen refuelling station network. The commitment at this stage is $20 million. The initial focus will be on the busiest freight routes with the Hume, Pacific and Newell highways, the first for consideration. In terms of the number of stops which would be required on a Sydney to Melbourne trip, Scott Nagar, Hyundai Senior Manager of Future Mobility and Government Relations, who has been actively involved developing the commercial and political environment to promote sustainable transport, said... Potentially one or two stops. It all depends on the load. So whether you're carrying um, carrying series or you're carrying um, a couple thousand cans of soft drink, there's a lot of obviously loads and axle weight. So it all depends on loads and, and comes down to the person behind the wheel, whether it's an EV or an internal combustion car or, or a hydrogen car. If you've got someone behind the wheel that loves putting his foot to the, the floor, it doesn't matter what, what they're doing, um, you're going to use more energies. The freight industry has been embracing technology to monitor and manage its transport movements. And as such, it is well-placed to be able to adapt to maximise the benefits of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. A recent article in the online news service, Voice of Real Australia, which has articles from journalists around the country, asks the question, do we support local businesses enough? Like most well-intended ideals, this won't come about by heartfelt calls to action, presented with passion and the wringing of hands. No more than road safety or drug abuse or catch public transport, etc. will be addressed if a government runs a few TV ads branded with their name. Transport has a huge role in encouraging local businesses by facilitating walking and other forms of active transport. If we get benefits from making shorter, more active trips, then that will bring a focus on easy-to-reach local businesses. For those who can, working some days from home is part of this, 
while one scooter hire company is looking at working with local businesses to give discounts if you go to the store on the scooter rather than a car. Not for everyone, but part of a behaviour change process. And that has been the news. The federal budget has been handed down. No matter which party you might vote for, the budget process and presentations are, to my mind, one of the most counterproductive exercises that aims to produce clickbait in the media and is squarely aimed at getting votes, not long-term improvements, no matter which side of politics you might support. I'm not saying who you should vote for. But rather, if we are to achieve progress in a rapidly changing world, we have to stop this nonsense immediately. My particular area of interest is obviously transport. Here are a few thoughts in this area that typify a more general deep concern. Size is not the only thing. Typically, budgets and the debate with the opposition, whoever they might be at the time, is along the lines of, my list of projects is bigger than yours. The main short-term coverage in the media is about how much money is being spent, not how well it is being spent. In fairness, I think the commentary is a little more focused this time on the shortcomings and the need for a better consideration of good policy, both in the budget and any budget reply from the opposition. The very word project indicates building a specific thing rather than a strategic approach that may not be building anything big at all. Professor David Hensher from Sydney University's Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies made this point in a panel discussion on modelling, which is all about what impacts of future situations might mean. The word project is dangerous because project is normally seen by most people to build something. And uh, politicians, of course, like that because they've got a a red ribbon to cut. But initiatives is is a safer word because it means it encourages us to look at a wider set of possible ways in which we can invest wisely to improve accessibility, social exclusion, well-being, climate change issues, which, of course, Phil's doing a lot of work on. So I think we need to think about the language we're using, but more importantly, to recognise that there's a much broader set of alternatives that we should be evaluating. And one of the greatest constraints I think we face is that we tend to narrow down what it is we're going to evaluate through the model, almost as if someone's already decided on the solution. And often, and research we've done recently, for example, if you double bus frequency in the outer suburbs of Sydney, that's a much better proposition than building an extra corridor of rail in terms of social exclusion, accessibility, access to jobs and so on. Yet politicians don't see it, they don't get it, uh, and buses are just an addition to a rail solution rather than an alternative. Cost-benefit analysis. Now, this can be useful, but there is no point in giving an answer without listing the assumptions that you made. And, of course, most projects get announced several times. The Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management said... Many projects listed in this and, of course, other budgets are already underway or are at the early stage of planning and yet to be positively evaluated by Infrastructure Australia. 39% of those in this budget are either not on the infrastructure priorities list or have no business case assessment through Infrastructure Australia's assessment framework. My memory is that 39% may be rather high compared to some years in the past. A focus at the local level. 
The New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, said recently when giving the Bradfield Lecture, we have made delivering mega-projects on a mega-scale par for the course. He then did add, this is great outcome for our state and our people, but now we must deliver in the face of uncertainty and in the midst of adversity. I am not pushing a particular party line, but I think that in that case, that context needs to be considered. And we need to shift the focus enough to get a balance between local and relatively long-distance trips, even if they are just within the urban area. There is a move now to not just focus on ribbon-cutting huge transport projects, but addressing across-the-board solutions, not just gold-plated solutions for a limited number of people. Too often we have ignored the cost of fostering long trips, And when I'm talking about long trips, I'm not talking about into the country. I'm talking about across the urban region, commuter trips, for example, where more and more money is spent on trying to increase the speed of travel. There needs to be focus on more active transport, walking and cycling, for as many people as possible, not all. The advent of e-bikes and e-scooters will create more opportunities to do this, which in turn will help create a better focus on local businesses. The reduction in the petrol excise. An across-the-board reduction in excise quite often gives the greatest benefits to those who have more funds and might not need it as much. In other words, those with big cars who make a lot of discretionary trips. The same happened when water rates were kept low to help the disadvantaged. The biggest cost to the government, and thus to the community, came from people with a lot of well-kept gardens and swimming pools. In regard to the short-term reduction in the fuel excise, a big issue is how hard will it be to bring it back? A difficult situation for the next government? Now, America froze their indexation of petrol tax in 1993, and their lack of funding for infrastructure has caused a long-term major problem. The removal of indexing by a previous Australian government was bad policy and actually poor politics. It was reversed by the Abbott government. Funding for process improvement. We need more funding and more visibility for specific projects to improve our collection of data and our analysis of that in order to reach the right decisions. The sleight of hand funding. Funding is often said to be increasing, but the percentage increase only comes some years down the track. This means that in the immediate coming year, there is low funding. So the next budget, the next year, you compare your projections based on the year just passed, which is low. You can keep claiming percentage increases till the cows come home, as long as you compare to year one, which will always be a low funding year. I asked a few colleagues who have retired about their work experience in the public service. One said, For my last years in a road authority, I was the senior manager for road and bridge asset strategy. For years, they were making valid business cases to Treasury to increase funding for road and bridge maintenance. There are good returns to be made from investing in road maintenance, including reduced costs to road users. But it is not a sexy or easy to sell thing to government, he kept saying. He continued, each time we put the business case up, it was acknowledged as good investment, but the money was never put in the first five years of the forward budget. That meant it was outside the time frame of the next election. And the funding increase got rolled forward a year every year. 
putting it in the never-never. He concluded, depoliticising government investment is critical, but not likely in the current culture. The politicisation of the public service is a huge problem, as highlighted by the Grattan Institute recently. Advertising is getting attention, not necessarily getting change. There's a push to do some advertising campaigns as part of our so-called strategy to address climate change. Advertising campaigns have often been a waste of time in actually bringing about behaviour change. There are huge examples in road safety where we all get worked up about the baddies who are out there, but no one thinks they actually have to adapt their own behaviours. You're listening to Overdrive. Alan Evans is a very successful businessman and is a former president of the New South Wales Motoring Club, the NRMA. We went motor racing together a number of years ago. Alan is now part of a project team we've put together that is looking at how much modern cars are distracting to the driver by how they design their dashboard and other controls, the human-machine interface. We're now collecting examples of what frustrates and confuses people, including simple things like changing the windscreen wiper speed. In the Tesla Model 3, it requires a two-step process on a touchscreen in the middle of the car, which for most people who are right-handed, they're using their less dexterous left hand, all the while as the car is in motion and moving around. Now, if you have a particular experience, you can let us know. Give us an email at feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. As well as people's thoughts and experiences, we are backing the project by linking to some academic work that has been done. Part of our team is Emeritus Professor Mike Regan from the University of New South Wales, whom we've had on a program a while ago. He's a psychologist who has worked in the field of ensuring human factors are considered in engineering analysis. Also, Terry Thompson, OAM, President of the Council of Motor Clubs. He is helping gather a few car club people together, and already I thank Evan and Ian for volunteering, who will help. It's not an arduous technical approach, it's a chance to look at some test cars and see how you would react. I will even get some car clubs to talk about how their cars, built in the past, looked at communicating with the driver. Terry tells me that there was one car club member who came up to tell him of a scary experience in his cousin's new Mercedes-Benz SUV. Driving down to the south coast in New South Wales, they went onto the new bypass at Albion Park. The car stopped itself as it did not know about the new road, so assumed they had gone off into a paddock just stopped in the middle of a road until they switched the car off, then switched off the sat-nav. But back to Alan Evans. For all his high-powered positions, he is also a dedicated servant in the administration of motor racing. I rang him the other day. He had just been out in the far reaches of Queensland, checking the course for an off-road racing championship round. This required hiring a car, driving huge distances, then driving around the course. Unfortunately, the air conditioning in the car stopped working. They had to drive with the windows down. When I finally got him on the phone, he said he was, quote, sitting in a laundromat in Brisbane, washing four days of clothes embedded with red dust. One set are partially clean, 
As they were that dirty, I was not going to touch them, so I just stood under the shower with them on to get the top layer of dust off. The things people go through to help us enjoy our motor racing. Now, next week, we will talk to Alan about his international business in dyno testing machines. What can they do now, and what is the role with electric vehicles? You're listening to Overdrive. There's been a government initiative to establish a hydrogen highway or highways. Interestingly, it's come from state governments, which I think makes some sort of point. But anyway, uh, Hyundai has been working very hard to look at alternative or sustainable energy uses in vehicles, and they've maintained and kept pushing hydrogen as one option in specific situations. Stop Scott Nagar is the expert with Hyundai and is here in Australia, and he joins us on the line. G'day, Scott. Hey, David. How are you? Good. How do you see this, that they're starting to do what uh, in terms of hydrogen? They're starting to look at the requirements for infrastructure throughout the state. So we've worked very hard of all the states and territories and also the federal government for many years now to try and uh, focus on what is replacement for petrol and diesel. Uh, we know that countries around the world are banning the sale of internal combustion, and that includes uh, diesel for, for light and heavy vehicles. So our job has been to get the technology here to demonstrate. So we've had a, a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle here since 2014. We're in the second generation. We've got those going out with um, with various territories, uh, territory governments and state governments um, to be used as there's different um, cars within government fleets, but also one is a police car in, in uh, the Brisbane. But the big one is infrastructure. Infrastructure is always the key with new technology. So this announcement um, from the Victorian, New South Wales and Queensland governments is a great step forward. They're going to work together to apply this infrastructure. Are they focusing specifically on the long-haul diesel truck market? The focus is on the long-haul diesel truck market, uh, mainly because that's um, a way of addressing our fuel security. So we look at um, currently with the two refineries left in Australia, we're importing around 97% of our fuel. Uh, and, you know, whether it be a pandemic or a natural disaster or pressure and tension with other countries, it gets very hard to ensure a, a, a continued um, flow of fuel to our country. Um, we're one of those really um, anomalies in the world. If we look at... Um, our energy security for our grids, we don't import any energy, energy for our grids. We're actually a net exporter of um, coal and gas and uranium and other things. Um, but for our liquid fuels, for our, for our transport networks, we import nearly all of it. Mm. And, and, and that therefore leaves us susceptible to international incidents and supply. Yeah, international incidents, pressure, um, whatever it might be, uh, we are a vulnerable country. Uh, but we do have um, a country that's blessed with a lot of solar, a lot of wind. If we look at the CSIRO maps around Australia, there's, there's no better place in the world to deploy renewable energy uh, than the coastline in most states uh, around Australia um, than, than here in Australia. So it's far better than a lot of places in Europe, North America and, and throughout Asia. That's why our, our northern neighbours, and especially Korea and Japan and, and a lot of people in the APAC region, are looking at Australia to make a lot of hydrogen so they can use their own transport networks so they can lessen their dependence on fossil fuels in the future. As a country, we should be looking at that ourselves um, as we import a lot of our fuel from some of those countries. So we do take our fuel from Korea and West Africa and, and Saudi Arabia and Singapore. So 
um, these countries are looking at Australia to supply the future fuels. So we should be looking at that for our networks. And the announcement by these state governments is a great way to really um, start that, that mapping of Australia. We are a big, um, a big country. There's a lot of distance between country towns. Uh, the benefit of hydrogen fuel cell is you can, you can recharge very quickly or refill very quickly, like a petrol or diesel um, uh, truck or, or bus or car, and you can drive similar distances. So this is where um, we'll be working with all our partners to try and get the information out there that internal combustion petrol is more than likely going to be replaced with EV in the future. And internal combustion uh, diesel will more than likely be replaced with fuel cell. The heavier the mass of a vehicle, fuel cell comes into its own. We're not going to power a big semi-trailer uh, with petrol, and we're probably not going to power batteries either. You know, it's, it's seven and a half to eight tonne of batteries in a, in a big truck to move it from point A to point B. It's probably to stop a, a few places in between the charge, and charging takes a long time or takes longer than refueling with hydrogen. So it is the natural replacement for, for big trucks. It is a focus, isn't it? It's it's not just this bland generality of, you know, this is sustainable and all will be lovely. It's saying, well, hang on, where does it fit? Now, is it hard to set up these types of depots and service stations, if you'd like? Is that a, a complex issue to do? It's it's not easy, but it's, it's hard to set up a petrol station now when you've got liquid fuels and store them underground. Probably one of the things we need to look at what's happened overseas and we need to study and learn from what's happened overseas. We're probably about 10 years behind the rest of the world when it comes to infrastructure in this area, especially with heavy vehicles. So uh, something you know, I recommend your listeners to download is download an app called H2 Live, just H2 and L-I-V-E. And if you zoom out of Australia, zoom into Europe, you'll see all the, the countries there that will be represented by their flag and it shows you how many operational hydrogen stations are there today and how many are under construction. So if we use Germany as an example, because our head office for Hyundai is based in Frankfurt, there's 91 operational hydrogen stations today in Germany and another 17 under construction. They're public stations. There's more that are owned on bus depots and trucking depots where public can't get access to those. And every single station, you click on the little blue dot and you can look at who operates the station, how much hydrogen costs. If it's open 24-7, can you pay by a shell card or do you pay with a, a EU hydrogen mobility card? Um, where it's located uh, and how it was funded because every single station in, in Germany just about is, has got um, supported funding from governments because it is part of their transition plans. It's interesting that you can indeed set up your own system, particularly, say, if I was on a farm, you know, where I run diesel tractors and, and you know, maybe a diesel SUV to get me into town and other things, that I could have a, a solar-powered thing that generates, put some water in there, um, the energy splits it up and I get hydrogen out of it. it it's not just focused in, in a few particular areas. Now, and those primary producers is a great example of where it can be applied. And the hydrogen station we've got on our site now is quite old. It's a 2004 model. It was uh, built in America. We were actually replacing it at the end of this year. Um, but it was used in a warehouse in Texas filling up forklifts. Now, it can fill up trucks and cars and forklifts. It will depend on how much storage you've got and how much uh, fuel you need. We're going to replace that with something that's a similar footprint, but it's going to have twice the pressure so we'll be able to fill up cars and get the full range. It'll make its own green hydrogen um, and have full communications to the vehicle. So the, the tech um, where the vehicles talk to the, um, the station, the station talks to the car, everything's monitored. They're a depot-sized refuel. That's called a PDC simple fuel. Um, there's great pictures on their website. They're an American company. 
where they've got them based at football stadiums and at different um, government offices and, and different locations and manufacturing sites, filling up cars and forklifts and other devices. But there is, um, you know, that farming equipment. I was in a show in Hanover Messi in Germany a couple of years ago and John Deere and New Holland and other guys were displaying hydrogen tractors and hydrogen farming equipment. So that's really the idea of, of having those guys that use a lot of diesel and have a stored of diesel on site to move to something green and use renewables at their farm to make the hydrogen and, and propel their equipment. Hyundai is committed to it. I think you were saying 2030, all their trucks are going to, big trucks are going to be hydrogen. But are other manufacturers still on that bandwagon? Is there is there... I'm not asking you to comment specifically on them, but from an industry point of view, is there still a broad acceptance of hydrogen as a power? Yeah, there is, and there's a number of, um, of companies work on that, and we have signed an agreement with Iveco the last couple of weeks to share technology, and there was one signed with Cummins a number of years ago, and, and a lot of companies are spreading off and doing their own things. Uh, we know that Daimler's got to focus on it for heavy vehicles as well. So there is a lot of um, a lot happening in that space. Hyzon's a, a startup. Scott, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much, as always, for your time. Dave, it's always a pleasure. Um, and we look forward to the next federal election and, um, and so it's going to happen there. And, um, and we'll continue to embrace with all levels of government. I don't care yes, who it is or what side of politics they're from. Um, as a country, we need to, be, yeah, need to be prepared as a whole. Have a great day. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, David. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Hencher, Alan Evans, Terry Thompson, Evan and Ian, Scott Nagar and Paul Just for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au for links to the socials and podcasts. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.